Hey there, your polygamy listeners. It's your favorite sister wife here, Lindsay Hansen Park. I'm excited to bring you a two-part episode. This is part one of part two of this discussion. So make sure you tune into both episodes. And you're going to be enjoying some music in just a minute at the beginning of the podcast. It's from a fellow Mormon ex-Mormon named Corb Lund. I've linked to his song on Spotify. And since we are tribal people, if you're Mormon, you should go support Brother Lund and download his album. It's really great. Many of you have come with me on this entire journey, and I'm not a dodo, as they say. I've heard what y'all think of my opening music over the years. I've gotten all kinds of feedback about it. I've even had some of my fundamentalist missionaries, this is a shout out to you, who turned it into a ringtone. So uh, that's embarrassing. It has always been really important for me to highlight and lift the voices of other artists creating their own content. And I've really tried to do that here. And now it's time for me to level up and get some cool, consistent, good theme music for the Year Polygamy podcast. So we're going to be hosting a sort of contest in January and stay tuned for more information on that around that time. But if you're a song creator, start thinking. I want it to be Mormon. I want it to catch the spirit of this podcast and hopefully highlight local or Mormon artists. And again, before I let you go, I would just invite you to support this project. Please consider leaving a contribution or becoming a monthly subscriber to the podcast. You can donate at yearofpolygamy.com or become a Patreon subscriber today. Your donation really helps make this project possible. And I just thank everyone out there for the support and for listening. And I hope you enjoy this two-part episode. Well, I have sinned so gravely, Brother Brigham, Brother Young. I have sinned so gravely, Brother Young. That only you can save me, Brother Brigham, Brother Young. But only you can save me, Brother Young. Well, I have revealed the temple secrets, Brother Brigham, Brother Young. The temple garments, oaths and secrets, Brother Young. Well, I have apostatized and doubted, Brother Brigham, Brother Young. And borne my testimony falsely, Brother Young. Okay, welcome back to the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And we've been planning this episode for months and months and months. Uh, the genesis of this episode came from an online conversation, and I, I engage in these every once in a while. And for as much as I like to say that I like respectful dialogue, sometimes I get sucked into an argument and I don't behave well. And one of those arguments has to do with the idea that Joseph Smith didn't practice polygamy or that he didn't have plural wives or spiritual wives or celestial wives, that he was married to Emma Smith only. And whenever that argument comes up online, for some reason, I kind of lose my cool and I don't like doing that. And so I gathered some really great friends of mine who are also really good researchers and historians. And I think we're going to try to put those arguments to rest. I was going to say to bed, but I feel like in the context of this conversation, maybe that's not the best analogy. But anyway, uh, let me go ahead and introduce our panelists and then I'll let them tell uh, tell us about themselves. So John Hatch, why don't you say hello? You're you're back again, your repeat uh, comment or guest on the show. Yeah, I'm back. Hello. What were you here for? Remind people what you were here for. We were talking about Lorenzo Snow and polygamy and, and his wives and kind of the, the evolution for him and Brigham City and that, that kind of thing. Okay. And why are you back here now? Why would I, why am I having you back on? Why did I, I do this? Know. That's a good question. <laughs> I think, so for me, I think there's, 
what I find interesting about the, the Joseph Smith wasn't a polygamous thing is certainly for some people there, there's maybe some naivete and they just aren't familiar, familiar with it. But for others, there's a conspiratorial aspect to this that I find fascinating. And that's, that's the part that interests me is, is human nature and behavior and why are people willing to go to such extreme lengths to not, you know, not believe that, that Joseph Smith had multiple wives. Well, good. We're going to, we're going to dive into that. And just so people know that you're not some rando, I just chose off the internet. You are, uh, tell us what you do at Signature Books. Tell us your background in Mormon studies. I'm an editor at Signature Books. I do a lot of documentary history and that kind of thing. So I suppose that's it. Being familiar with the documents and the history. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's good enough to get started. And then we have also a, a second John on the podcast, John Dinger. And should I call you guys by your last names? Is that the best way to do this? Should that's we call totally you? Fine. I could call you by your priesthood offices, whoever has the higher priesthood. <laughs> that's got to be Hatch. So. <laughs> okay. that's, no, no, that's, that's not, yeah. John Dinger, why don't you introduce yourself to us? Uh, well, I'm honored to be here. Um, I am an attorney up in Boise, Idaho. I've been doing that for 12 years. Graduated from the University of Utah. I've written some on Nauvoo and done a little bit with that. Uh, Mormon history is a big uh, hobby of mine, and I just really enjoy it. Yeah, and you just presented at Sunstone. Do you want to tell us the title of your paper? I don't remember at the exact Sunstone, title. Sunstone, I presented at two Sunstones last year. I was really glad you came to Boise, where I talked about uh, Orson Hyde, the Council of 50, and the last charge. And then at uh, Salt Lake Sunstone, I did one on redacting policies at the Church History Library. Yeah, so you're going to be covering some other well, I'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. Okay. Thank you for coming on. Brian Buchanan, you are also a repeat guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? Hi. Uh, yeah. And I just want to make sure, is this like Saturday Night Live where me and Hatch get to make fun of Dinger because this is his first time as guest? Is that how it works? Well, I feel like the hazing uh, happens both on the air and off the air. So whatever happens off the air. Stays off the air. Stays off the air. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to be back. It's uh it's weird to not be in the studio this time, but you know, I'll, I'll do what I have to. I'll be talking about Richard and Pamela Price, who are the forces behind the Joseph Smith fought polygamy idea. And so we'll see how that started and then how that plays out after the prices even. Okay, so let's go ahead and get into it. And like Brian Buchanan said, the prices is are a family that you're going to hear a lot about. So... I come from the LDS tradition and trust me, I did not, it would have, my life would be a lot easier if Joseph Smith had never practiced polygamy. Uh, it's not something I want. It's not something that I wanted to find out or I was happy to find out. And yet here we are. So I think there is a large movement that happened in the early beginnings of Mormonism where there was a split over the topic of plural marriage. And as that split sort of grew, there was a group that came out of the RLDS church who really spent a lot of time and energy and effort denying that Joseph Smith practiced polygamy because they needed that story to validate their narrative. And out of that comes the Price family, which Brian is going to talk more about. But the Price family dedicated really their entire lives to this argument that Joseph didn't practice polygamy. 
and their research was popular for a long time, and then it sort of died down after professional history emerged. But now it's back. I'm seeing a lot of LDS people who, in spite of the, you know, the LDS church sort of being more transparent about this history and publishing essays, uh, I'm seeing a lot of LDS people who are really attached to this idea that Joseph Smith didn't practice plural marriage pick up the prices arguments again. And it kind of drives me batty, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But um, John Hatch, why don't you start uh, walking us through some of the main, I guess, conspiracy theories out there? Conspiracy theories on why Joseph isn't a polygamist? Yeah, so sorry, I didn't walk us through that very well. Um, yeah, so what are like, the... I can talk about, like, you know, the JFK assassination. <laughs> if you what want. are the top you 10 conspiracy theories? What are talk the... about Dick DeBelt. Talk about Dick DeBelt. <laughs> Uh, so talk, what are some of the arguments out there, the most common ones? So I, there's, so if, if you're talking about like conspiracies and again, not just a, a lack of knowledge. So certainly there is that there, that a lot of the contemporary evidence is pretty scant, which is, which is true. And I know um, John Dinger is going to get into that, but it's, it's pretty easy to argue that, well, hey, there, you know, Joseph Smith denied being a polygamist, for example. Um, so, so there's a lot of that. And then you do get into this RLDS-LDS split in the 1860s and 1870s when there's a real concerted effort to by the LDS church, and especially someone say like Joseph F. Smith, to argue that polygamy happened. And so you, you can say that, well, this actually came about as a way to justify later polygamy that was started by Brigham Young or something like that. That's, that's part of it. You get into, and, and, and I should say up front, I don't pretend to be intimately familiar with all of these arguments. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff out there on the internet, but you do get into then some even, you know, farther out there stuff saying that documents were forged that the, the little bit of evidence that we do have, um, some of these contemporary sources were actually forged or, hey, we've never seen the actual, you know, the actual papers. Um, the, the Clayton Diaries, for example, although it was recently announced that those are going to be released, the, Clay, the actual, you know, physical Clayton Diaries haven't really been seen. We have transcripts. So it, it makes it easy for people to say, well, well, how do we know these are real? So you get into that kind of stuff. Okay, so we're going to try to take these arguments piece by piece and break them down. Um, do any of you guys, the other panelists, want to talk about some common arguments that you've heard in defense of this first before we get into everybody's assignments? I, I don't know so much about argument, but the way they argue, I've found. Mormons, we are incredibly good at proof texting, of taking a scripture um, taking it completely out of context and applying it kind of how we want. And it seems like those that want to deny Joseph Smith's polygamy are very good at doing that. They take one source out of its context, isolate it from anything else that corroborates or helps it, and then say, well, let's just look at this one source and are able to dismiss one source without all its accompanying thing. And so um, I don't know if that's quite an argument, but it's certainly how they uh, go about arguing, which I think is important to understand. Yeah, that's that's something that's difficult for me too, especially as someone who has spent a lot of time 
dedicated to this topic, people will say, well, then you have an investment uh, to prove that Joseph Smith was a polygamist because you spent so much time into it. And actually, the genesis of this was the opposite. I, Like I said, I really didn't want Joseph Smith <laughs> to be a polygamist. It was devastating for me when I found out. And so if I was invested in anything, it would have been that. But the way that people argue, especially in Mormon studies, like you said, is very much designed to sort of back maybe this is how people just argue in general but just to back up their the conclusion that they need it to be and that can be difficult brian do you want to say anything on it on this yeah i I think the the tone of things is important is how it's being argued is almost as important as the actual points being argued and you know and then we get certain things that get recycled a lot and not to step on Dinger's tales with William Marks here, but there's this great account of Joseph coming up to him and throwing his arms around his neck and saying, oh, what are we going to do about this terrible mess of polygamy? And I want it gone and, and all this. And so we get these, these things that get recycled enough that they become true, whether or not they are actually true because they've been said so much. So, yeah, the, the how of it is almost important as the what of it in some cases. Perfect. Well, uh, Hatch, why don't you bring us into what you've been talking about? You're going to talk about these theories and basically just the nature of belief in general. Yeah, that's a perfect lead in both, both of what they said, because it is about how these things are argued. And I think if we back up a little bit, that's that's maybe the most important thing to understand about this. We're not when you talk about conspiracies. Um, and, and let me also say conspiracies happen. Um, and I understand that, that it can, can, you know, conspiracies are, you know, two or more people conspiring to do something. So when I talk about conspiracy theories, I should, I should say that I mean these kind of grand conspiracies that we hear about the JFK assassination, the moon landing was faked, you know, 9-11 conspiracy theories. Um, when it comes to Joseph Smith wasn't a polygamist, that's, that's sort of in the vein that I, that I mean when I talk about that. So it's the way people argue about it. And it's important to understand we're not, we're not talking about facts. We're not talking about, hey, we're having a discussion here about this or that topic. And if we just, if I provide my information and you provide your information, why we'll get a clear picture of what's going on. That's, that's not how conspiracy theorists work. And an example I would give is how often have we seen some kind of situation where an expert in a topic agrees to debate someone. So for example, Bill Nye, the science guy, has agreed from time to time to debate science deniers. And what happens almost every time is the science denier comes off looking better than everybody expects. People sit down and watch this expecting, wow, there's this expert. He's, he's just going to blow these people out of the water. It doesn't work that way because we're not, again, we're not comparing expertise and facts. We're really talking about rhetoric and we're talking about persuasion. And so when when someone goes up against a conspiracy theorist, they really should have training in rhetoric and argument in how these things work and understanding. Because you might feel like you're really familiar with Mormon history. You might feel like, hey, I've I've read Todd Compton. I've, I've read Brian Hales. I, I know Joseph Smith's polygamy, you know, but then you get in a conversation with some of these people and all of a sudden you, you might hear things you've never heard of before. They may be true. They may not be true. That, that's an important thing to remember. We're conditioned um, to, to buy into stories. We, we evolved uh, to be a storytelling people. 
and to, you know, trust other people. So someone tells us, hey, did you know that so-and-so said this about Joseph Smith? Did you know that, you know, to, to use Brian's example, did you know that about this William Mark story? And someone might say, golly, I didn't know that, you know, and, it, and all of a sudden they find themselves being persuaded. And so it's important, I think, as we move forward to, to keep that in mind. This really isn't a situation where you present your information and all of a sudden, oh, people get it. Um, that's, that's not how this works. And so we have to come at it with that understanding that the people are here for a reason. They believe these things for a reason. A big part of it is it makes people feel smart. It makes people feel smarter than other people. It makes them feel like they're part of an in crowd. Hey, I know this thing that other people don't. Um, studies show that people who don't have a lot of control or who don't feel in control are much more likely to buy into conspiracy theories. And so imagine someone who's LDS their whole life and they, you know, they go through a faith crisis. They read something, they hear something that's really upsetting to them. They suddenly feel like they don't have a lot of control over their life anymore because this was the center of their world. And now they feel it slipping away. And so a conspiracy theory like this, Joseph Smith really wasn't a polygamist. It's, it's a good out for them. If that happened to, if polygamy was one of the issues that was causing their faith crisis, it not only gives them stability, it gives them a, a new community of like-minded people. It acts as a substitute um, in some ways for the church. And so I think understanding these things about why people believe is, is helpful as we go forward, because you may present all kinds of evidence, but these people aren't necessarily going to buy it. Conspiracy theorists don't deal in just the same sort of facts and evidence and truths that the rest of us do. They deal in anomalies. They deal in really obscure things that, again, you may not have ever heard of. And again, someone who's fairly familiar with this topic or, or any topic might be approached and hear something and go, "What? wait, what? God, I, I didn't know that. I, I'd never heard that before. And again, all of a sudden, it, it sounds impressive. And then they find themselves second guessing themselves. So I think it's a good starting point for all of this. Basically, we can sum up everything you said as in doubt your doubts. Is that what you, is that what you mean? Pretty much. Yeah. It's <laughs> good. Uh, okay. So th that's a good foundation for this. I Can we dive into a little bit what people's motivations would be for, you, you, you talked about control being one of the reasons why people latch onto conspiracy theories, but let's jump into the Mormon psyche for a minute. And I mean, for me, when I know that covering this, this project, understanding the history of Mormon polygamy and sort of the public denial versus the private acknowledgement, there is something like in our DNA where we have to confront this issue of is polygamy a legitimate part of Mormonism or not? And, you know, I was talking to a reporter just this morning and she was saying, well, why, you know, why is legalization of polygamy such a hot topic here? And I said, I think it's because aside from the legalities of making, you know, polygamy legal or not, aside from the all the trappings that go with that, it legitimizes the practice. If we were to legalize polygamy in some way, it's saying that it's a valid thing. It's a valid form. And Mormonism has this really funky history with 
having it be valid, having it not be valid, having it be secret, having it be sacred. And all of us have sort of gone on this roller coaster ride at some point in our Mormonism, I think. So anyway, that was a long introduction to my question. What what motivations do you think, um, what do you think is going on in someone's head as a Mormon when they're confronting these issues? I think it depends on the person, but I think, again, I think a faith crisis is a big one. If you go through a faith crisis, you might, you know, you might find yourself really upset by these, these discoveries of Joseph Smith's polygamy. I remember sitting in a, in a class once at, at, at the U and somehow this topic came up and, and someone said, yeah, Joseph Smith was a polygamist. He had like, he had over 30 wives at least. And there, there were people getting visibly upset and, and the standard stuff immediately comes out, right? Well, no, those women were sealed to him after he was dead, this kind of thing. But people have a visceral reaction to this. So I think that's part of it. There's, there's the faith crisis. The other thing is there is this strange thing going on with polygamy in the church where on the one hand, it can't because Joseph Smith practiced it because prophets and the church founder practiced it, it can't be completely disavowed. But the church is clearly embarrassed by it. Members don't like it. You know, I, I think maybe it was John Krakauer, somebody who, who basically said it, it's sort of like polygamy's like your racist uncle. You maybe love him, but you just are really embarrassed by him and don't want to have him over for Thanksgiving. That's, that's polygamy in the Mormon church. It's still, and it's interwoven into theology. It's also not that you can just say, well, again, standard stuff, right? Well, there were, there were so many widows from the persecution that we had to marry these women off. It's so much deeper than that. I mean, I'm, I'm in the middle of editing Devery Anderson's School of the Prophets minutes, and there are multiple statements. They're, they're having a big debate right now whether or not you can get into heaven if you're not a polygamist. I mean, this is really, you know, a huge part of LDS theology. It's, it's hard to let go. And so saying Joseph Smith didn't do this, and maybe some misguided people later did, is appealing. And especially with some of the, I don't know, breakaway movements, whatever you want to call them right now, where you're, you're less inclined to need to have Brigham Young be your prophet, then it, then it becomes even more appealing. And I will say, from my experience working with polygamous families now and plural families, when I hear the way that most people talk about Joseph Smith's polygamy, Brigham Young's polygamy, frontier Mormon polygamy, it's really one-dimensional to me. I mean, it seems like it, it almost becomes a fairy tale or a bedtime story. And when you're, you know, meeting real polygamists, there there's two things that are striking, at least to me, how normal it seems and how abnormal it seems at the same time. And like you have to hold these two tensions together. And I don't think that that translates a lot in the history that we talk about. And so when I hear the stories that we talk about Joseph Smith and his wives, it just seems almost so foreign to the reality of what polygamy is. And I think that that's the mechanism of history. That's that's how we know how to tell stories. And so I think maybe people pick up on that one dimensional aspect. And because it seems so foreign to them, they can't make sense of it. But polygamy is really complicated and diverse. And it still frustrates me that that most people I talk to, you know, people that are plugged into the Mormon world still think that there are LDS and FLDS, the Warren Jeffs group, and that's it. So I think that that's another thing that people do is we just like reduce all of these things down to the simplest story so we can digest it rather than what it really is. 
I think that's completely true. Another thing that might happen with if there are women who are more inclined to believe that Joseph Smith didn't practice polygamy, polygamy is so Joseph centric. It's so it's sort of weird because it it deeply affects women in Mormonism. And yet it's so male centric. That's what we spend most of our time talking about is Joseph Smith and Brigham Young involved, not really the women both then and and now, you know, to to this day, you know, I'm, I, I still hear these stories about, you know, women who are terrified that, that they will die before their husband and their husband will get remarried and sealed and they, and, and he will be a polygamist. And the fact that this is still going on. So, we, we focus on, on the men here. And so it might be appealing again to someone to say, oh, well, this, this isn't real. You know, this, this is a big mistake. And, and this has been manufactured by later men to justify the behaviors of men in the past, that there may be something to that as well. Yeah, and, and that's another good plug for Carolyn Pearson's book that she has written, The Ghost of Eternal Polygamy, which we've talked about on here before. I, I've said it before in this podcast, and I'll say it again. The strange thing being LDS, and I can speak to this from personal experience, that I would say that puts LDS women at a disadvantage with this topic to other, say, fundamentalist women, is that we are told, at least I was told growing up, that polygamy is weird and wicked and we don't do that anymore. And it's the thing that our ancestors did that one time, but the people doing it now are really misguided and evil. But yet, it could be that way in heaven. And so when you have to wrap your mind around that, this idea of like, it's weird and gross now, but that's what heaven looks like, it does it does some things to your psyche. And um, I think that a lot of a lot of LDS women have to grapple with that. It's it, In some ways, it's easier for fundamentalist women who grow up in plural families having a model, you know, and they know that it's not as screwed up, or maybe they do know how screwed up it is, but at least they know what to expect, if that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, and yeah, like growing up Mormon, we don't know what to expect. We hear about this. It's sort of it's much better, I think, today. I would It would be interesting to grow up Mormon now with the internet than, you know, the way, the way I did. And to be able to go to LDS.org and see essays on polygamy, although I, I, it's my understanding those are still not, not very well known throughout the church. But yeah, I think there, there is that big difference where it's, again, there's this very uncomfortable middle ground that polygamy occupies in, in the mainstream LDS church. Does anyone else want to speak to that? Well, yeah, it is interesting. You talk about the it's it's at the same time so foreign, but then once you get to know people who are living polygamy and see how normal it is for them, it is you know it all depends on your experience. If you're used to something, if you if you're around something, it it doesn't feel nearly as foreign as something that's that's just an abstract concept that you've never really seen happening that you just hear about. Yeah, what, what struck me is, um, clearly I can't speak as a woman, but when you brought that up, the other thing is women really aren't given permission to process it. They're simply told, if they do have a problem with it, this will work itself out in the afterlife. Don't worry about it here. So they're not given the, the opportunity to process or really work through their feelings here. They're just simply kind of told it'll all work out, and that's, I don't think, very healthy. Yeah, I think that I think that that is a great way to to say it. There's not a lot of healthy ways to discuss this topic in general. I would say almost anywhere. <laughs> so I, I'm glad that we're talking about it now. 
Okay, so John Hatch, do you want to keep going or is that all you have to say on that? Oh, that's all I have to say. No, I mean, we, you know, I'm sure other things as, as Brian and, and John keep talking that, you know, things will come up. But yeah, I think, I just think that it's really, I guess I'm, I'm pretty big believer that really we have to understand we're not talking about we present two sides to this story and then a clear picture emerges and someone will understand now that Joseph Smith was a polygamist. We're talking about, again, rhetoric and arguments. And I, I think you have to start with that and, and go from there, you know, that, 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 that's what, that that's what this is about. And again, that, and so one, one last thing I'll say on that really quickly is I think it's important that people understand that no one is calling someone who believes a conspiracy theory dumb or a bad thinker or whatever. The, the evidence is pretty clear and studies show that smart people are just as susceptible, perhaps not more so susceptible to this kind of thinking because smart people are really good at convincing themselves that they're right. And so they may, they may you know, be able to say, well, I'm, I'm smart and I wouldn't believe this if it were crazy. So it must be something to it. That's, that's part of it as well. So I think, again, going forward, maybe with a little bit of compassion that someone who, you know, here I am saying, oh, they've suffered a faith crisis or they must be going through this hard time, maybe, but maybe they've just read something that they found compelling and they're just very good at convincing themselves that, that this is the way things are. I really appreciate that, especially since this is something that really irks me. And I've had to, I've had to sit and pay attention to that because I do break my own rules and I go against my own values when I have this conversation. I get really, really frustrated. And I think it is true to say that I that I have been invested in this. And I and I can hear people say that and say, well, she has a bias. And I would say, yes, I do. My bias is towards respecting and honoring these women's stories. And I have a hundred other biases that I talk about here. And that is what you can get from me is I, you know, can promise that I will do my best to be upfront about those. So um, that's a good a good place to start talking to John Dinger because we were talking about how evidence isn't always compelling. But I do want to talk about some of the facts and some of the evidence because I think that those are sort of the weapons that this battle is fought with, if that makes sense. Uh, John Dinger, do you want to bring us into this? Yeah. So I'm hoping to talk about two main things today. The first one being, why don't we have very many contemporary sources for Joseph Smith's polygamy? And then I want to jump into uh, not a comprehensive list, but many of the contemporary sources that we do, in fact, have. And so historically, we've been given two reasons why there's a lack of these sources for Joseph Smith's polygamy. The first one is kind of the sacred or secret, sort of the milk before meat. And so the LDS Gospel Topics essay, that's what they go with. They say that, you know, this lack of sources resulted from participants being quote, ask to keep their actions confidential. And so the other one that we historically are told about is that polygamy was a crime. Like uh, George D. Smith in Mormon Polygamy, he said, uh, secrecy itself defined and delineated this tragedy. They were engaged in illegal bigamous marriages. And so we have those two things that that are very helpful in explaining why we don't. But then um, there's a third one um, that I'll get to that hasn't been explored or talked about yet. And so the first one, the sacred, the secret, that one's not as compelling to me. Uh, and so I'm going to kind of skip over that one. Plenty of places where people can can uh, read that. But 
I want to talk about crime, polygamy as a crime. And so back then, individuals absolutely were prosecuted for this thing. And they were that was done under two statutes. There was the adultery or fornication statute there in, um, in Illinois that said, any man or woman who lived together in an open state of adultery or fornication shall be indicted and on conviction shall be fined in any sum not exceeding $200 each or imprisoned not exceeding six months. And the other one in uh, Illinois was the bigamy statute, which was, quote, the having of two wives or two husbands at one and the same time. And so these weren't just hypothetical crimes. I mean, individuals were absolutely prosecuted for this in Illinois and even specifically Hancock County. Uh, in Hancock County alone, in 1841, uh, Simeon Howard and Nancy Lewis were indicted for fornication and adultery. In 1843, uh, Mormon Jordan Hendrickson was indicted for bigamy. And uh, oddly enough, Orson Pratt was on the grand jury that indicted him. Uh, and then in 1844, in, um, there were two indictments. There were Joseph Mullen and Martha Jolly indicted for adultery or fornication. And then this is getting more well-known, but a lot of people don't know this, that in May of 1844, Joseph Smith was indicted for adultery and fornication. And uh, I'm going to talk about that one a little bit later. But then it wasn't just in the crime. There were people that were scared of this. There's a, a, a Nauvoo High Council meeting on January 24th, 1843, where there was a case of John Thorpe and Sarah Miller for, quote, living in adultery and unchristian-like conduct. And, uh, Sarah Miller, she showed up. Um, she had married Thorpe on December 6th of that year, and he had a living wife in the city, but he didn't show up. And the reason given was another reason which he had not for coming was that he was afraid that he would be arrested by the civil law and sent to the penitentiary for bigamy, which was proof of his guilt. And so, you know, engaging in this was illegal. It was a legitimate worry. And so that explains, I think, a lot of why we don't have positive sources of polygamy, why Mormons themselves weren't simply shouting it out in the streets or printing marriages in the newspapers. Uh, but there's another one that I think is more interesting, and it explains, I think, the exposés and why we don't have more exposés in this time, and that was the existence of sexual slander laws and how they were used in the 19th century in Illinois. And so these laws were created in the early 1800s, 1823, and they were supposed to be used as sort of a shield for women. Um, back then, the courts were paternalistic and really kind of had an economic view of sort of women, believing that if you sexually slandered them, they then wouldn't be able to get married, and that would hurt them kind of economically and just in general. Uh, the thing is that's odd from Nauvoo is instead of being used as a shield for women, the sexual slander laws were used as a sword by Joseph Smith and Hiram to kind of quiet people. And so, um, again, these were not hypothetical. Those who uh, were found guilty of sexual slander had huge judgments against them at the time. In 1840, there was a case, Russell v. Martin, in Illinois, where uh, a woman was accused of adultery, fornication, and being a whore, and she was awarded $400. In 1843, there was Cabot v. Regnar, same kind of thing. She sued and was given the incredible sum of $1,600. In 1844, there was a Patterson v. Edwards, where a woman got $220. And then, in, interesting, in 1845, there was uh, the case of Hatch v. Potter, where an individual 
was joking around that saying about somebody's wife that she slept with me one night before she was married and I screwed her. Um, and even though he came in and said it was a joke, it wasn't true. Um, he was still, she was still awarded $425. So this was a big worry to people. I mean, it's one thing to go to jail, but when they hit your pocketbook, that's when it really matters. And so there were actually quite a few cases of sexual slander in Nauvoo, but they were all brought before the Nauvoo High Council and they were kind of taken care of there, kind of brought together and everybody apologized and hung it out, except for two cases. There were only two cases of sexual slander that were taken through the courts. And one was taken by Joseph Smith and one was taken by Hiram Smith. And so in 1842, Joseph Smith uh, sued Chauncey L. Higby. And so he was uh, basically saying that Joseph Smith was engaged in the spiritual wifery, that he had something to do with the John Bennett crew there um, that was all brought before the Nauvoo High Council. And ultimately, he was bound over. Uh, he, was, he had a little hearing, and they said there was enough uh, evidence for you to be bound over to go to the circuit court. And it never went further, but one thing that it did do is it had a very chilling effect. Um, he quit, uh, and by he, Chauncey Higby, he quit making these claims. He stopped. He was not a big participant in John C. Bennett's book, and so it worked. The other one was Hiram Smith v. Uh, O.F. Boswick in 1844, in where he said Hiram was engaged in this spiritual wifery. And again, he sued him. He won at trial. His brother was the judge. But nonetheless, um, he was awarded $50. And so this too had a chilling effect. And so if you keep these things in mind as you read the exposés, you actually see that people like John C. Bennett in History of the Saints and the laws in the Nauvoo Expositor were very careful how they presented this evidence dealing with polygamy. And they didn't go near as far as they could have. And we're going to kind of hit both of these as we get into the actual documents. But Bennett, um, you know, there's that really famous part that we'll talk about where he lists names, but he doesn't list full names. He just uses the asterisks. He likely did that because of the sexual slander laws. And then the Nauvoo Expositor, it's, it's something that's kind of been built up. But if you read it, it's actually very tame. They don't name any names. They don't um, really go that far. And so you read it in light of these sexual slander laws and you see that too. And so while this may have been a good thing for um, people living back then, particularly the women, um, and then it wouldn't have been embarrassing or brought them shame, it, it truly did have a chilling effect on contemporary sources. And so as historians today, we're, we're weaker for it. But to simply claim that we don't have contemporary sources because there aren't any just isn't true. I mean, you really need to take a, a true look at the time, including the laws and just the environment that they lived in. And that explains quite a bit as to why we don't have that many sources. Okay, so this is a this is a good start. And I want to bring this up. One of the arguments that I hear a lot is that I think Brian is going to talk about this one or two things that make it sound like in the context of just those one or two things that maybe Joseph Smith really didn't practice polygamy. And we had I had John Hamer on a couple of years ago to do the same thing to talk about to talk about this Joseph fought polygamy stuff. And he said that there are mounds and mounds of evidence to support that Joseph did practice it. And what you just talked about is one of those things. So one of the arguments used is there are no contemporary sources, like you said. No, Joseph Smith never wrote down in his own hand, I am a polygamist. And that is used all the time to say, well, you know, how can we trust it if 
he said he's not a polygamist. You know, he said he, he did say he wasn't a polygamist in his own hand. And so um, what you just pointed out is there are all of these other things surrounding it in the environment. The context of it matters. And hopefully you can talk about why why Joseph doesn't have it in his own hand. And I'll just spoiler alert with my opinion. I think the lack of evidence is just as damning as as the evidence based on the environment that you're talking about. Yeah, I absolutely agree. The fact that we have things missing, like you said, the lack of evidence oftentimes is evidence enough. When somebody doesn't answer a question, that's usually an answer in and of itself. And so I absolutely agree. Um, And while he doesn't write in his own hand, I, Joseph Smith, you know, hereby declare I am a polygamist, um, we do have writings in his hands that, um, again, put in the proper context and really looking at fairly, um, he, he kind of does say I'm a polygamist. And so I'll, I'll push back on them every day of the week. And so while we don't have mounds and mounds, well, we, honestly, we do have mounds and mounds of evidence that he's a polygamist. But quite honestly, in a way, we, we're kind of playing their game. Um, today, we're only going to talk about the contemporary evidence of his polygamy. You know, we'll, we'll play by their rules. We'll throw everything else out after 1848. I think that's the last document I'm going to talk about today was in 1848. So we'll play their game. But there is lots and lots, but there is a good portion um, pre-1848. And so that's, that's the second part that I want to talk about. Do we have that you know of any polygamists, uh, proven polygamists at the time, writing in their journals, I am a polygamist. <laughs> Here are all my polygamist wives' names. Here's how many times I visit my polygamist wives. Um, you know, maybe not that clear. Um, I mean, we do have some letters from Blake Kimball talking about a polygamist that got pregnant and what are they going to do. We have Joseph Smith's letter in his own hand saying, hey, sneak over, knock on the window, make sure Emma's not here, you know, just weeks after he's being married. But what I'm saying is we don't have any other polygamists that we know of writing these explicit confessions of their own polygamy, right? No. We have accusations, the same as Joseph Smith. We have hearsay and we have gossip, but we don't have any polygamist that I know of writing in their journal a declaration that they're a polygamist. Well, I mean, again, they don't write the words I hereby declare, but William Clayton, I mean, he was, he was an excited and proud polygamist. He wrote quite a bit about um, the problems he was having, and he didn't hide at all that uh, he was a polygamist. We have the Lott family who was very proud of Melissa's marriage to, their, to Joseph Smith, that it's written in a family Bible. So, yeah, we don't have a lot of here's what happened written down in their journals, but um, there's some good evidence there. One thing, just real quick, you do have a couple cases where marriages are mentioned, but they're always in, they're in code. You know, I am married X to Y or, you know, something like that. And the very fact that they're doing it in that way Again, kind of back to our, our lack of evidence, the way that they're doing it speaks volumes. They're doing it, it's there, but they realize it's, you know, we got to do it under wraps to some degree. Well, and so that's, have- I think that's what I'm getting at too, which is 
I think people are holding Joseph Smith to a standard that they wouldn't hold even William Clayton because William Clayton, of course, he does talk about this and he gets into some trouble. He has some domestic problems at home with with his polygamy. But you don't have anyone at that time advertising it, writing it in explicit letters. They were using code for a reason. Absolutely. And I think it goes back to that second point that that criminally, it's something they don't want to get in trouble for. And you kind of, in talking there, hit something else of holding Joseph Smith to a standard. Another kind of trick that I see a lot in these cases are people will apply legal standards when it's convenient to them. So people want this beyond a reasonable doubt, even though history doesn't work that way. We don't use legal standards. But then, you know, when the other side wants to present something, it's, it's you know, probable cause, if you will, to use a legal terms here. It's, it's um, when, it, when it's convenient, they hold Joseph Smith to the standard they want. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I think I'm going to talk about too later on. And I feel like there's a huge double standard in what we expect from the women in these situations versus the men, but we'll get into that later. So keep going with, um, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just think that the contemporary point needs to be brought up because that is something that I hear over and over and over again. Absolutely. And so that, that's where I'll jump in. We'll, we'll, we'll play the game. And so I'm going to go through some of the contemporary sources for Joseph Smith polygamy. And it's by no means a comprehensive list. I didn't think you wanted to do a six-part podcast, though. Um, I mean, I wouldn't mind. I've done 140-whatever episodes, but... So we'll just, we'll just kind of hit the, the high points. One of the first ones that I hear a lot, though, is the Revelation. Section 132 is later forgery. And we have contemporary evidence in Nauvoo that that's just not the case. And so the first one that I want to look at is the affidavits in the Nauvoo Expositor. And in there, so William and Jane Law uh, make an affidavit, and then Austin Cowles make an affidavit. And in William and Jane Law's affidavit, affidavit, they say that Hiram Smith did in his office read to me a certain written document that he said was a revelation from God. He said that he was with Joseph when it was received. He afterward gave me the document to read, and I took it to my house and read it and showed it to my wife and returned it the next day. The revelation so-called authorized certain men to have more wives than one at a time in this world and in the world to come. And then Austin Cowles, uh, he writes, uh, in the latter part of the summer of 1843, the patriarch Hiram Smith did in the high council, of which I was a member, introduce what he said was a revelation given through the prophet. Um, and then he gives kind of a summary of, of what's in there. But what's important is he says, um, first, the sealing up of the person to eternal life against all sin, save that of shedding innocent blood or consenting thereto. Second, the doctrine of a plurality of wives or marrying virgins, that David and Solomon had many wives, yet in this they sinned, not save in the matter of Uriah. And so if you take Austin Cowles, well, number one, the laws, I think, make a very good general summary of Section 132. Um, Austin Cowles gets specific. If you compare what he says there to Section or verse 38 and 39, um, where they talk about David and Solomon having many wives and the sinning in the matter of uh, Uriah, you see that he's spot on. And so those statements there made in 1844 match up to section 132. But I think even more so um, in is Joseph and Hiram's comments about the Nauvoo Expositor in these affidavits. 
So there was a Nauvoo, well, there were two Nauvoo City Council meetings on June 8th, 1844 and June 10th. And these documents are available for anyone to go look at. They're not forged. And in these, the Nauvoo City Council was discussing what to do about the Nauvoo Expositor. Um, ultimately, they decided to destroy it. it the, the minutes are, are fascinating because they're angry. And I think they know what they're going to do. But they do take the time to really go through a lot of legal sources. And they kind of hit everything and talk everything. And on June 8th, uh, here's what Hiram says. It says, Hiram ref- referred to the revelation he read to the Nauvoo State High Council that it was an answer to a question concerning things which transpired in former days and had no reference to the present time. And then on June 10th, um, Hiram and Joseph both comment on it. Uh, Counselor Hiram Smith spoke to show the falsehood of Austin Cowles in relation to the revelation he referred to, uh, that it referred to former days, not the present time, as stated by Cowles. The mayor, who was Joseph Smith, said he had never preached the revelation in private as he had in public had not taught it to the highest anointed in the church in private, which many confirmed. And so what's important here is that they both um, admit that there was, in fact, a revelation. They admit that it was regarding, particularly Hiram, that it was regarding um, marriage, uh, polygamy. They simply dispute, at this time, his interpretation of it. And so this um, is pretty good to show that there was, in fact, uh, a revelation given to Joseph Smith dealing with plural marriage. It's all but admitted by Hiram and Joseph. And again, these these are, you can go look at the originals. There's a great book by Signature Books uh, by a great editor who uh, did the city uh, minutes in the High Council. But um, you can also look at the full scans of the actual documents. And so moving on, if you guys don't want to jump in. I kind of want to move to Sarah and Whitney. We have four contemporaneous documents that really show that he lived polygamy. And so the first one is a letter to Newell K. Whitney, July 27, 1842, which also includes a revelation of what the marriage ceremony should look like. And so I'm going to quote portions of this. These are the words which you shall pronounce upon my servant Joseph and your daughter, S.A. Whitney. <clears throat> they shall take each other by the hand and you shall say you both mutually agree, calling them by name to be each other's companions so long as you both shall live, preserving yourselves for each other and from all others and also throughout eternity, reserving only those rights which have been given to my servant Joseph by revelation and commandment. I then give you, S.A. Whitney, my daughter, to Joseph Smith to be his wife, to observe all the rights between you, you both. And so, again, in this, we it's a document from 1842, and it uh, spells out the marriage. Now, in conjunction with that, we have the next letter, Joseph Smith's letter to brother and sister Whitney, and etc. He doesn't use her name, um, but he says etc. So there we are talking about that code again, uh, just a little bit later on August 18th, 1842. And this letter is written in Joseph Smith's handwriting. There's a full scan available on uh, the Joseph Smith papers, or you can go to the church history library and see this. But he writes in there, so he's, he's on the run. Um, there are warrants out for his extradition to Missouri, and so he's away from loved ones, and he's somewhat lonely. He's, he's writing because he wants comfort. And so while it says, dear, you know, it's to brother and sister Whitney and et cetera, he does say, I want you three eternally to keep in your bosoms 
for my feelings are so strong for you since what has passed lately between us that the time of my absence from you seems so long and dreary. If you three would come and see me in my lonely retreat, it would afford me great relief of mind. I'm now at Carlos Granger's, uh, just back of Brother Hiram's farm. It is only one mile from town. The nights are very pleasant indeed. All three of you can come and see me in the forepart of night. Let Brother Whitney come a little ahead and knock at the southeast corner of the house at the window. It is next to the cornfield. I have a room entirely by myself. The whole matter can be attended to with most perfect safety. I know it is the will of God that you should comfort me now in this time of affliction. The only thing to be careful of is to find out when Emma comes, then you cannot be safe. But when she is not here, there is the most perfect safety. And so again, written in his own hand, you know, this sounds like a letter that a newly read right a newlywed writes to their spouse. And I don't know that I need to comment more on the the sneaking around. There'd be no reason to sneak from Emma unless this is a second marriage, something polygamous, uh, and something that she's not happy about. And so to me, that's that's one of the, the best contemporary sources, because again, it's it's in his own hand. And, you know, you, you look on the Joseph Smith Papers web page, and uh, you read those volumes, and you know that very little is actually written in his hand. So this was something that's very important. Um, along with Sarah Ann Whitney, there are two other documents. Um, there's the deed to Sarah Ann Whitney, which is just three weeks later. And keep in mind, she's 17 at this time. And she is deeded lot number two in the block number 139 of the city of Nauvoo. Uh, and so he gives her a piece of land that's valued at $1,000. Um, this is signed by William Clayton. Um, a polygamist, and then it's notarized by her father. That's who was involved in this transaction. And just a bit of a side note, uh, if you go and look at the deeds and you look and see women that Joseph Smith has deeded um, property to, there's a giant list. And, and let me read some of these. There's Sylvia Lyon in June of 43, Elizabeth Durfee in March of 43, Helen Mark Kimball in June of 43, Miranda Hyde in February of 43, Martha Knight, February of 42, Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner in July of 43, and Patty Sessions in August of 1843. Clearly, the common denominator there are those are all wives of Joseph Smith. He would take care of them temporarily by um, deeding them land, again, all contemporaneously. And then the last one is, and, and you know, I, I don't need to tell you, Lindsay, or your listeners that I'm repeating much of what was talked about in, um, I think it was episode 135 with uh, Ben Park. Um, that's, that's the next document. So I'll just breeze over that if you want to really. So that's know. just the, just as a refresher, that's the document we got really excited about because it's fairly new in the last year or so it's been published in the Joseph Smith papers project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, and so it is the, he took care of her temporarily with the, um, the deed, but now he's he's kind of assuring her spiritually. He he writes a blessing to her on March twenty third of eighteen forty three. Um, you know, O oh Lord my God, Thou that dwellest on high, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But what's important is he says, "It shall be so said, the Lord, if she remain in the everlasting covenant to the end, as also all her father's house shall be saved in the same eternal glory." And so this specifically states that she needs to remain in that everlasting covenant. And so again, it's, this also is in Joseph Smith's own hand, which again is very rare to have things in his own hand at this time. 
And this can also be viewed as, as uh, been talked about. And so all four of these are good contemporary documents that show Joseph Smith lived polygamy. But I think that these four kind of underscore that problem that, uh, with, with, that some people have with evidence. Um, what they want to do is, instead of read these all together and uh, look at them in their context, um, you want to isolate them. And, you know, nowhere in this document does it say, I, Joseph Smith, lift polygamy and simply uh, dismiss them. And so I think that this is a good point to show that we need to read documents together. So moving on, we have this kind of... Um, hey, John? Yeah. Before you leave her real quick, one thing interesting about it being in his hand um, with this latest papers volume and the Liberty Jail period, David Grew, one of the editors, made a point that apparently Joseph felt that there was something special about Emma. And so when the letters would go to her, he would write them, which, as you pointed out, very, very rare. And so the fact that he is, is writing these in his own hand means something in and of itself. So the, the I mean, the, so very few documents in the Nauvoo period, especially letters, blessings, things of, of substance like that in his own hand, that again is another piece of evidence. I appreciate that. And I, I think... We see other places where he writes in his hand very special things. In one of his histories, it's written in his scribe's hand until it gets to the first vision. And then he takes over and he writes in his own hand the first vision. And then once that's over, it goes back to the scribe. And so I appreciate that, especially the point about Emma, though, that writing a loved one, writing a spouse, if you will. I think that holds up here with, uh, with Sarah Ann. I'm also going to jump in really quick because something you said, I think is extremely important to call out. You, you said that people want to view these documents in isolation. That's, that's the calling part of the conspiracy theorist. Um, not taking the whole picture. We have to look at the forest through the trees because it's really easy. And, and again, if you're in rhetoric and if you're dealing in argument, it's really easy to pick apart anything. You can argue with someone if whether or not the sky is blue, you know? And so when you isolate these things and say, well, well, you know, I'm suspicious of this blessing because of this, or I don't think that letter meant that he was meeting her to be intimate with her or have sex with her or whatever, like you can have those arguments. You have to take the whole picture. And that's exactly what conspiracy theorists, regardless of the conspiracy you're talking about, they, they don't want to do that. Um, and so, you know, so then you have to ask, like, well, where does this lead us? You know, what's, if, if you're picking these things apart, what's kind of what's your end game? <laughs> you know, the, does your argument go anywhere? And usually um, a lot of times conspiracy theorists don't have an answer to that. They, they, they're not going anywhere with this. They're trying to put you on the defensive. And if you're going to have this conversation, you need to, you know, not fall into that trap and not get pulled down into the weeds about, about these specific documents and, and push back with your own questions and your own and your own statements. And again, keep this broader picture in mind. Absolutely. I think you're saying that directly to me, but yeah, fair. <laughs> well, I mean, of course, but. So, so the next one that we get is this individual who was a bit of an oddity uh, there in Nauvoo. It was Oliver Olney. And so he has some documents from both 1842 and then 1843, which discuss uh, polygamy. And so he was um, the president of the Teachers Quorum in Kirtland. He then moved to Nauvoo, and he was one of the individuals driven out of uh, DeWitt. Uh, sorry, he moved to Missouri, and he was one of the guys run out of his home out of DeWitt County, Missouri, and ultimately ended up in Nauvoo. And then in Nauvoo, he kind of gets crossed because he um, 
declares himself uh, a prophet, if you will. But um, so in 1842, he writes a lot, and there are quite a few mentions of polygamy. And he kind of writes in a verse form uh, in this one document where he says, and again, I would say unto you, resurrecting a plurality of wives, they will be trouble to you as they will harass you both night and day. And so he gives this warning to Joseph Smith and the leaders of the church that resurrecting polygamy would be a bad idea. He then writes a book in 1843, and he says, I will now touch on a subject of which must of which much has been said that I would cheerfully pass by, but the importance of the subject forbids my doing it. Polygamy was first introduced in Kirtland, Ohio, about eight years ago. Hint after hint had been going until we have to say they have begun to do as well as say. This subject has been kept in the dark as long as it could be, as it was first said to be too strong meat for the Latter-day Saints to bear. And so again, his his dating, you know, he says 1843, and then he says eight years ago. So that squarely puts it in the time period where there was the Joseph Smith, Oliver Cowdery kind of blow up over Fanny Alger. So his dating is right. And then he, he does, he talks about sort of that, uh, why we don't hear a lot about it. It's too strong meat for Latter-day Saints. Now, a lot of people might be saying right now, okay, those are two pretty general um statements. Uh, isn't Oliver only just simply repeating rumor? But I want to bring up the third one uh, that he wrote. It was between October and November of 1843, and he wrote it on the back of a Relief Society membership application. Um, I'll talk about his wife in a minute, but she was the assistant secretary of the Relief Society. And what he writes on this is, Hiram art a wicked man because he has sinned in marrying women. And then he lists the plural wives of Hiram Smith as Ms. Perry, Ms. Thompson, and Ms. Derbeau. And so what's important here is that he got those right, basically. He said Ms. Thompson, and uh, Hiram married Mercy Fielding Thompson. Well, so he got that one right. The Ms. Perry, that one is probably wrong. And then the Ms. Um, Derbeau, he probably meant Ms. Dibble, Lydia Dibble, who Hiram married. And so he was able to get the plural wives of Hiram Smith correct. And so, again, this wasn't a, an LDS-controlled document. These documents are all found in Yale. He split with the church and took those with him. So, again, these aren't anything that could be messed with or monkeyed with or forged. So, another one is, so his wife, Phoebe Olney, or Phoebe Wheeler Olney, she was the assistant secretary to the Nauvoo Relief Society. And she also wrote on the back of Susan McKee um, Culbertson's application, uh, something, and, and this was probably done between November of 1843 and April of 1844, certainly when Joseph Smith was still alive. And again, this document is uh, housed at Yale. And so she brings up Joseph Smith's wife, Ruth Sayers. And what she writes, and I'll say this this handwriting is terrible. I've seen multiple historians take on this, and all of them seem to be a little bit different because it is it is some bad handwriting. But it says, Mrs. Sayers, if she don't look out for and keep still, she will be put aside. Do not like it, but it is the desire of their hearts. They will do it, saith the Lord. What motive has Sayers in it? Joseph did not trick that woman. She went to see whether she should marry her husband for eternity. And so she brings up Ruth Sayers. And again, um, as the assistant um, secretary to the Relief Society, she would have been aware of kind of the going-ons of polygamy in um, Emma's one, Crusade Against Polygamy, but two, 
most of the leadership of the early society were in fact wives of Joseph Smith. And so that's a, that's a pretty important um, document. The next one I want to turn to is John C. Bennett's 1842 expose, History of the Saints. And this is full of, full of stuff. And, um, you know, his book is, is an oddity. It is, it is a mix of truth, half, half truths, outright lies, literary license, uh, just, it is an absolute mixed bag. He talks a lot about in there different things, but the most important one is where he, referencing back to what we talked about, is he gives a list of six names. He doesn't give the full name. He gives the first initial and then asterisks. And so he says, in concluding the subject, however, I will semi-state two or more cases among the vast number where Joe Smith was privately married to his spiritual wives. In the case of Miss A.S. by Apostle Brigham Young, and in that of Miss L.B. by Elder Joseph Bates Noble, and then there are the cases of Miss B, Miss D, Miss S, Miss G, Miss B, et cetera, et cetera. And the asterisks, it's not just one asterisk, it's actually an asterisk per letter. And so we can go and figure out exactly who these are. And so he got these correct. He got Agnes Colbert Smith, Louisa Beeman, Priscilla Huntington Buell, Elizabeth Davis Durfee, and Patty Bartlett Sessions. The fifth one, or the sixth one, I'm sorry, I think is still a bit of a mystery. There's still debate on that one today. Uh, it's possibly Sally Angoli. It's possibly uh, Sarah Rapson, which he may have been confused with Rapson. So that, but he absolutely got these right. And so a lot of people want to simply dismiss those who left the church, those who are antagonistic, and particularly John C. Bennett. Just they want, they don't like the guy and I'm with them. I think John C. Bennett is terrible. I don't think his motives were pure. I don't like the guy. But he was absolutely right on. And one of the things that people like to do with his writings are they bring up where he is kind of writing over the top and sarcastically about Joseph Smith's harem, the Cyprian saints, the chambered sisters of charity, and the cloistered saints, sort of this hierarchy of polygamous wives or or just concubines. And anybody familiar with these type of 19th century writings, these kind of exposés, find very quickly that, that this is very common. John C. Bennett is not truly saying this is how it was in Nauvoo. He is selling books. He's being over the top and sarcastic. In this book, there's also a whole lot of stuff. There's the Martha Brotherton, those kind of things, which I think is important. Then we have um, a woman who is willing to step up and share her story, and she's immediately you know, shot down and kind of demonized uh, there in Nauvoo. But um, there's a lot in the John C. Bennett book, and, and I think that's all I'll do for specifics with that. Um, just really quick, do any of you guys want to weigh in on any of that that he said? Martha Brotherton coming forward, John C. Bennett, because both of those guys are, both of those characters are considered sort of lightning rods in Mormon history. Well, there's also the laws, and I imagine John will talk about that, but, you know, the laws are, are, are a really good example of this. And again, you know, and, and the Nauvoo Expositor. I appreciate. I think John said earlier it's it's a fairly tame document. These there's really not a lot of evidence that the laws are these you know just hyper maniacal people out to destroy Joseph Smith and and they certainly didn't have the same motives that John C. Bennett Bennett did and so that's you know that's a whole other thing. So to to take these people and to demonize them, I think is you know, is, is problematic at best, especially again with the laws. 
there, there does seem to be a, a different motivation there. And I think we need to listen to them. I lied. I do want to jump in. Anytime where you have two sides of whatever discussion who will agree on particulars, you know, motives aside, but will agree on particulars, that ought to be, that ought to raise some, some red flags. You mentioned earlier the, the expositor affidavit where William Law describes the, the revelation and, and what was done with it thereafter, which lines up perfectly with how Joseph or Hiram or somebody on the other side of the discussion would have described it. So anytime, you know, you look at, you always have to look at, you know, what people have to gain, what people have to lose. And, and when you're trying to weigh evidence like this. And so anytime you get people agreeing on what happened, not necessarily why it happened or how it came about, or whatever, but the particulars of it, that's, that's important. Yeah, no, I agree with that too. And I think that that line of reasoning, we need to apply across the board when we look at all of this stuff, especially considering the history of how much was at stake, not just uh, legally, but for reputations and things like that. So, Dinger, do you have more to say? I, I have a lot more to say. Okay, good. Well, I've seen so bravely, brother Brigham, brother Young. I've seen so bravely, brother Young. That only you can save me, brother Brigham, brother Young. That only you can save me, brother Young. Exaltation, brother Brigham, brother Young. My only chance for exaltation, brother Young. It's to send me over the rim of the basin, brother Brigham, brother Young. The rim of the Salt Lake Basin, brother Young. For water cannot save me, brother Brigham, brother Young. Baptismal water cannot save me, Brigham Young. My sins are just too deep to die, oh brother Brigham, brother Young. My sins are just too deep to die, oh brother Young. So send avenging angels, brother Brigham, brother Young. Won't you send destroying day nights, brother Young? Spill my blood upon the earth, oh brother Brigham, brother Young. I beg you, spill my blood, oh brother Young. And let it smoke ascend to heaven, brother Brigham, brother Young. As an offering for my sins, a smoking incense, brother young, a blood atoning for my sinning, brother young. Cause I've sinned so gravely, brother. Brigham.